I enjoyed getting to spend a few days at Ozark Christian College uh, this week, where I did my undergraduate work. Uh, Ozark will celebrate its 80th anniversary this month. Uh, the school has been uh, raising up Christian leaders uh, and pastors for the last 80 years. And while we vastly prefer the weather in Indiana to that of our home in southwest Missouri, it's good to go home every now and then and see family. I had the library at Ozark all to myself. The students were gone. It was me and the librarian, and she left me alone. It was glorious uh, until my brother-in-law came in with my nephews and ruined it all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I did see him briefly, uh, but it was, it was great. It's pretty cool to go back to the place where our family business started. Is that weird for me to say as a, as a pastor? I, I'm a preacher and a pastor. So is my dad. So was his dad. It's kind of the family business. <laughs> uh, my grandpa graduated from Ozark Christian College in 1950. My dad was class of 76. In fact, there's a picture of him and holding me like as a baby, like six weeks old. And I think Fred is in the same picture because they graduated in the same class. And then I'm class of 99. It, it, it's a little bit like being in a family business. I mean, we've had the same boss the whole time. <laughs> I recognize my bias. But I think family businesses are cool. When the same family runs an organization for a long time, uh, I don't know what brand those symbols are in there, but the Zildjian family has made had a symbol-making business for about 400 years. It's incredible. It's one of the oldest family businesses in the world. Um, it, it's cool. I, so I put this poll out on Facebook this week, like, what's, your, what's been your best experience with a family business? And it was really interesting to hear people's responses. There were kind of two common threads. First is that um, a, a successful family business tends to treat its customers like members of the family. That the, There really is this um, great sense of care, that they really seem to care for their customers. And, and second is that people's best experiences with this was that they felt like the, the business always treated them right, like they did the right thing every time. It was like, no, we're going we're gonna to make it right. And that's not surprising that we would appreciate those things since they tend to be the same factors in Jesus' family business. We're going to talk about the Lord's family business today. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you in the room, grateful that you're here. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Uh, if you're doing that because gas is expensive, we get it, okay? Uh, and if you do, and seriously, for real, if you have to choose between food or, or like gas money, um, just please stay in contact with us, okay? We want, if we're going to disciple you digitally, uh, we want to be able to do that. So, so help us uh, do that. Fill out your connection card like Kyle mentioned. Grateful that he was uh, here joining us again today. We're continuing our series today called Love John. On this first letter of the Apostle John, he's writing to those that he knows um, in, in the broader community of church as well as in um, what's modern-day Turkey, and he's laboring in love to persuade them to reject the false claims of this group of heretics. Full, it's kind of come to be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is one of the words in Greek for knowledge. 
These people believed that they had some kind of secret knowledge from God that helped them have a, 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 you know, a more significant relationship with him than somebody else, an average Christian, okay? And so it wasn't full-blown Gnosticism really until into the second century, but you're starting to see the roots of it here in John's community. And he's fighting that. He's saying, no, this is not true Christianity. And he's urging these people to become that which, by God's grace, they already are. See, John uses a couple words throughout his letters that emphasize this. He uses the word technion, which it gets translated dear children. He, he's a, he, this is what you say for your, your um, little grandkid. Your little one crawls up in your lap. You know, I love you, papa. I love you, grandma. Right? Like, ah, oh, sweetie. You know, it's that warm word. And he also uses another word. It's, in older translations, it gets translated beloved. In the NIV, translates it dear friends. It's the Greek word agapetos. One of our, you, if you heard the word agape in there, good, good for you, right? It's, again, this word of warm regard, uh, deep concern and care. And he, it's kind of a structural device. It just pops up over and over through the letter. And when John does this, it's because he's either bringing in a new idea or he's re-emphasizing something that he has hit on or expanding on something he's talked about before. I told you a couple weeks ago, John's letters don't work like Paul's letters. Paul's letters are really easy to outline. A, B, C. I mean, he just it's very structured. John's letters are more like ripples in a pond. He throws this truth rock out there and it just kind of ripples out. Okay, and that, and so when it's like, it sounds like he just keeps coming back to the same thing. No, he's just expanding the ripple. It's just a new ripple in, in the pond, okay? And, and John is going to use both of these terms or variations on them, this dear children and dear friends in our reading today. What John is saying is he, he's encouraging these Christians to work in the family business. Let's read together. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, meaning Jesus. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, look at this church, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, look at this, was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. 
For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who murdered, or who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Implied answer, it isn't. Dear children, there's another one of our words. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, there are a lot of ripples there. (laughs) He hits on a lot of themes that we've already talked about. Here's what I think John is putting in the foreground today. All right, here's the big idea. In Jesus' family business, we make two products, love and righteousness. And when we do that well, we destroy the competition. You are called, he says, dear ones, work in the family business. And in Jesus' family business, there are two products, love and righteousness. When we do those things well, we're going to destroy the competition. John says that the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We're part of God's family, right? We're his children because we've been adopted, right? Our adoption papers are signed in the blood of Jesus, shed for you on the cross. We're part of God's family. That means we need to work in the family business. We need to participate in the work of Jesus, which was to use love and and righteousness to destroy the work of Satan and those aligned with him. The eminent New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce talks about the connection of love and righteousness. He writes, for him, referring to John, righteousness and love are inseparable. Since they are inseparable in the character of God and in his revelation in Christ, so they must be inseparable in the lives of his people. So how does this work? How do love and righteousness destroy the devil's work? Well, I think that there are two parts to Jesus' business plan that we see here in the text. So we're going to look at Jesus' business plan for his family business today, all right? Here's the first part of the plan. Number one, love outperforms hatred. Love outperforms hatred. John sets up the idea of us being part of God's family in chapter 2, verse 29, but we're kind of primed to be looking for something, you know, high performance, something amazing in chapter 3, verse 1. The text literally begins, the first word in the NIV is see. In older translations, they would translate that behold. Like, hey, pay attention to this. Look at this. Okay, what am I supposed to look at? And, and, And then he adds here, he says, what great love. The word translated what by the NIV, it literally means what sort of, what kind of. It can also be translated from where, from what country, all right? And this implies that God's love for us is so unique, so incredible, so unusual in, in being different than the ancient world, right? So unique to our experience, we can hardly wrap our heads around the result of what that means for us. He says, see, behold, 
Look at what great love the Father has lavished on us that we are called children of God. Can you believe that you get to be a child of God? Wow! Wow! Now, we read that and we go, oh, cool. Hang on a second, because you don't know your Greco-Roman context. In the Greco-Roman world, a child was not considered to be part of the family until the father gave it a name and identified it as his child. I've told you before that, you know, the ancient Romans practiced this principle of exposure. If they had a baby that they didn't want, they'd just take it to the dump and leave it there. Okay? They didn't have the pill, right? They didn't have abortion. They did that. It was the same thing. And Christians would go out and rescue these babies and, and, and <laughs> adopt, raise them as their own. A baby was not part of the family until the father gave it a name. Until the father said, okay, I accept you as my child. It's called legitimation. That's what John is talking about. That's the context. He says, God has brought you into his family. He has named you as one of your own. This is, I think, John elaborating on what he wrote in his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, look at this. It says, yet to all who did receive him, the him there being Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is saying that because we're part of God's family, we're in the family business. And to prove his point, he uses a negative example of somebody who wasn't Cain. If you need a reminder, John is referencing Genesis chapter 4, right? The, the, Cain and Abel, the twin sons of Adam and Eve, right? They, they um, offer sacrifices. God views Abel's as righteous. He views Cain's as insufficient. Cain gets mad. He says to his brother in Genesis 4, 8, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, the sequence of thought in this text really matters. What John is not saying is that Cain, by murdering his brother, became the child of the devil. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, being a child of the devil, his actions were evil and culminated in the murder of his brother. The sequence matters. John is trying to tell these people who are flirting with this pre-Gnostic heresy, these people who claimed to be a child of God but did not love the other believers, that it's love for God... It's, and love for your brothers and sisters that's proof that you have the eternal life of God in you. That love is the proof of spiritual regeneration. Sometimes we try to prove regeneration with other things. Church has a long history of this, right? Well, if you can speak in tongues, then you're really saved, right? Or, or if, you know, uh, if, if you have submitted to the physical act of baptism, then you're really saved. Or if you do these various good works, then you're really saved. No, John says. No. Now, those things are great. Don't get me wrong. But what he's saying is that the proof of it is love, that you're like your father. The ultimate proof of love is relinquishing your claim on your own life and giving it up for somebody else. And he says that will outperform hate every single time. It wins. In the marketplace of ideas, love outperforms hate every single time. 1 John 3, 16, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, right? This past Monday was Memorial Day. We often see this verse quoted on Memorial Day when we remember those who laid down their lives in battle 
for their brothers and sisters, and rightly so. It's a good reminder. But if God has not called you to lay down your life in battle, how do you live this verse? Well, the text goes on and talks about material generosity. He connects this. He says, if you see your brother and sister has a need and you don't try to meet that, how in the world is the love of God in you? It's not. Now, I want you to notice that, that need, that's, that's need-based and it's relationally connected. Right? It's not, this is not just, well, I'll give it to the church and let the church figure it out. No, it's, here, brother, take this. It's, it's very personal. It, it's, it's like, I know this person. I know their need. I'm here. I want to help you here. <laughs> the work of Jesus' family business is love. Why, why is that the case? Because love outperforms hate. It just wins every time. And, and there's, there's research, actually, that backs this up from the business world. I want to share this with you. I, I, some of you are not going to know where I'm going with this for a little bit. Hang with me. Let me just, can I ask your indulgence and patience for a second? Okay. There was an article in The Economist magazine recently that highlighted the fact that family businesses are overall more successful than their non-family counterparts. Uh, the Boston Consulting Group did a study of 149 large publicly traded family-controlled uh, firms, and they revealed that their long-term financial performance was higher across the board. Similarly, research by Credit Suisse, uh, which looked at data from 280 family-owned companies worldwide from one financial year, showed that they, their growth outstripped public companies in revenue, and this was during the global recession of 2011 and 12. Family businesses just did better, family-owned businesses. And this was their research. They said there's, there's a, a, a lot of differences between them, but there were four common traits. Number one, long-term orientation. Long-term orientation. Family businesses are committed to, to handing off the, the business in better shape than they found it to the next generation. The, one author of the study said he would talk to these CEOs, these leaders of the, these family businesses, and he would ask them, who do you work for? And almost inevitably, the answer was, my kids and their kids and their kids. That's who I work for. There's this long-term orientation, thinking of the future, making sure that they're still around. The second common trait was institutional memory. The, the European study by Credit Suisse uh, found that family members' long relationship with the company and the knowledge of the industry increased their ability to, to bet on solid innovation instruments. They, they're able to handle, it's what we're talking about, y'all, is discipleship. They're able to train the next generation. They're able to hand it off effectively because they grow up in it. They just know it. They know it inside and out. The third thing, uh, this, this common trait, is smart diversification. Right, that there's an increasing acknowledgement that a family-owned businesses actually diversify better than others. They bring in other elements that, that they're not as just um, focused on one thing, and it reduces risk, allows them to leverage existing knowledge to grow. They start branching off companies that have, you know, kind of they work alongside that, that just keeps growing. And the fourth thing, the, the fourth common trait is this balance between tradition and change. Family businesses tend to adapt well to technological and other change, even as they continue to embrace tradition. Now, why would I take the time to talk about business stuff at church? Let me tell you. Because when we love well, it creates the same four dynamics on a spiritual level. It's the same four things. When we love well, we set up the church for long-term faithfulness as a discipleship factory. There's this long-term orientation. When we love well, 
we stay better connected to our heritage. This, we've got 2,000 years of history and tradition to draw on. And when we love each other well, we can, we can do this. There's this institutional memory that occurs. When we love well, we're better able to minister to people in different ways because they have diverse needs. You do, maybe you don't see this. I certainly see this. Every Sunday morning when y'all come in the doors or y'all log on online, everybody comes in with different needs. Some people have had a week from you know where, and they're just like, they're, they're hanging on, <laughs> white knuckle grip to Jesus, like I am so about ready to just punch out. But I'm going to go to church. And, and they need encouragement. And they need someone to put their arm around them and go, you are loved. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm for you. How can I help? And some of y'all come in here and you need a kick in the teeth. In love, right? In the name of Jesus, you need someone to get up in your grill. And, and like, hey, you're not supposed to live this way. What are you doing? Um, Sunday morning church might not necessarily be the best way. Sometimes that happens better in a group. But we come in with different needs. Sometimes it's like, I don't know, I got this situation with my kid, or I got this situation with my parents. I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, help, you know, and, and we're able to come alongside you. There's this idea, we come in here with different needs, and so this loving each other well helps us um, handle that diversity. And when we love well, we stay flexible, but we don't compromise on the essentials. There are some essentials. There are some things that just, these, these, we cannot compromise on this. Yeah, we can, we can flex, we can move, we can try to be nimble, but these are things that we absolutely cannot bend on. John is telling us that love is not the cause of spiritual renewal, it gives evidence of it. And, and this is why, church, this new secular creed, you're aware of this, this new secular creed, love is love, that all love is the same, it doesn't matter, it's all equal, love is love. You've seen this, you've probably seen on signs in people's yards, especially this month. Right? And that's why that creed is so woefully inadequate. All love is not the same. Our love for others is not the cause of our justification before God. It is the result of it. And yet our culture is insisting on the exact opposite message. That what makes you a good person is love is love. That's not what John's saying. John is saying, no, we've been given justification by grace through faith. And that results in love. Don't get it twisted. There's a difference here. The righteous demands of God's holiness must be satisfied in Christ, and they are when we surrender our lives to him because he surrendered his life unto death, chapter 3, verse 16. Love outperforms hatred. That's the first part of Jesus' business plan. Here's the second, that righteousness outbids selfishness. Righteousness outbids selfishness. I have never worked at a job where I had to bid for work. I've never had to do that. I have been outbid a few times on eBay, though. It's very frustrating. I don't like it. Because, like, I want that thing! <laughs> and I'm only going to pay this much. Ugh, some guy had more money than me, you know, or, thought, or, or he valued it more than I did, you know. John is telling us, listen, it, it, it is our job, church, it's our job to frustrate the devil and his children by outbidding their selfishness through righteous living. One of the most striking things about this text is John's very bold language about his opponents being children of the devil. 
<laughs> Did you notice that? Like, he flat out calls the people who are against him children of the devil. Like, when's the last time you heard that at a family meal? Whoa! He called, these are, by the way, these are people that he knows. These are not just strangers on the internet. These are people that he knows personally. You're a child of the devil. And we read that and we go, how in the world can he say that? Guess what Jesus did? He's simply replicating the words of his master. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. That's the other family business. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If anybody ought to know about this, it's Jesus, right? The second person of the triune Godhead in bodily form. He was there when Satan rebelled. And John is turning the claims of these false teachers and their followers against them. Unlike these heretics who merely claim to be sinless or that sin has no power over them, that they can do what they want, it depended on there's two different circumstances. The true children of God do not continue to live in sin. That's what's evident from the verb tense in the original language. He's not saying they don't ever sin. He's saying they don't continue in it. It's, it's, every one of these verbs is present tense. It implies continuous ongoing action. They don't continue in this as a way of life. Now, I think we need to deal with something important here that's, that regards the integrity of the text. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 seems to contradict chapter 1, verse 8, and verse 10. Let me, let me show you this little chart here, right? So 1 John 1, 8, and 10 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, and then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, now by the way, verse 9 says he'll forgive us of our sins, right? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. But then in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What's going on? Now, people who are critical of the Christian faith look at that and they call, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. Because he's not speaking to the same situation. He's a, we need to remember that in this letter, John is addressing two variations on heresy. One variation said that I, I, sin has no power over me, right? That I've stopped sinning. I've just, I just don't do it anymore, you know? It's like I told you that story about the lady who went to her pastor and preached this barn burner on sin, right? She goes to her pastor and she says, that was a fine message, pastor. I didn't need to hear it, though. What do you mean? She says, well, I haven't sinned in 30 years. He said, that's amazing. Three more years and you'll have the record. Um, <laughs> so... You have some people who are claiming that they've never sinned, right? So that's what 1 John 1 is at, what it's saying. But you've also got these other people that he's addressing who claims that the sin principle, or it's the idea that, well, God has redeemed my soul, and that's all he really cares about. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want. And he goes, uh, no, you can't. This is not a contradiction because he's not addressing the same situation. There are two variations on this, this heresy that John is speaking to, right? They, they, some people, they have this belief that in, in chapter 3, God only cared about their soul. It didn't matter what they do with their body. And John's like, no, it matters what you do with your body. He's saying that the way we live matters. 
And ultimately, it's a better deal than the confused and selfish actions of the devil, of Cain, and of those who work in their business. Y'all, listen. (laughs) Righteousness is going to outbid selfishness every time. I, I probably don't have to ask you to think real hard about a time in your life when you've been selfish. I mean, I could literally come up with like a few just in the past week. You know, through this series as kind of a point of application, I've been asking you, write a letter, like an old-fashioned, real, honest-to-goodness, on-paper letter, put it in an envelope, stick a stamp on it, and put it in the mail. What if you did that this week with an area where you've been selfish? Where, where you just would say to somebody, you know what, what I did, this was really selfish, and it, it, didn't, it didn't foster righteousness in me, and it didn't help our relationship, and I just want you to know I'm sorry. I acknowledge that that was wrong, I'm, I'm trying to grow in being more selfless like Jesus was, and would you please forgive me? It's, just, it's one way to live this out, right? People get selfish, and it leads them to do wrong and bad stuff. Let me give you an example I heard about in the news this week. Um, the Department of Justice has filed charges against a father and his three sons for their role in illegally selling industrial bleach. Uh, the bleach itself is not an illegal substance, uh, but according to officials, the, the family business, the, this, <laughs> they made a business out of this, consisted of fraudulent, fraudulently marketing these toxic chemicals as a miracle cure. Industrial bleach. This is true. According to the criminal complaint, Mark Grennan of Bradenton, Florida, along with his adult sons, repeatedly sold their customers their mineral miracle solution And they claimed that this could cure not only COVID-19, but various other ailments, including malaria and cancer. It was watered-down industrial bleach. And people were ingesting this. According to press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida, the FDA has received reports of people requiring hospitalizations, developing life-threatening conditions, and dying after drinking their mineral miracle solution. The DOJ alleges that the Grennans sold thousands of bottles of this fraudulent solution over the last couple of years, netting over a million dollars in the process. They're also, you can't make this up, they're also accused of attempting to operate as a religious nonprofit entity, the Genesis 2 Church of Health and Healing, for the purpose of avoiding government scrutiny and regulations. That's true. That's their family business. Here, drink this bleach. Really? You know what that is? That's selfishness. I'm going to hurt someone else to advance myself. That's about the best expression I've ever heard in a metaphorical sense of what the devil is trying to do to our culture. He's selling them poison and trying to couch it as some new secular creed that borders on religious fanaticism. Listen, I know that sometimes the wheels of justice turn slowly, but the fact is, righteousness is just a flat-out better deal. It outbids selfishness, ultimately. In the long run, it wins. And a major part of the way that we resist the devil and those doing his work in the world is by living our lives at the intersection of sacrificial love and personal righteousness. That's our sweet spot, church, in the marketplace of ideas. It's where we're most profitably employed. And every time over the last 2,000 years that the church has gotten off track, it's because we've, lo- we've, we've moved out of that intersection. 
We moved out of that marketplace of the intersection of righteousness and love, and we veered off to just one or just the other. And every time we do that, we lose ground. And so the way we recover it is to move back into that place. Now, what's that look like? Well, man, there are as many ways to do that as there are people in the church. Let me give you a couple examples. Since 1999, June has been recognized as Pride Month, noting that in June, 30 years earlier, 1969, during a police raid on the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay club in Greenwich, New York City, resulted in arrests and riots. And ever since, our culture has been insisting that we be proud of something that the Bible uniformly adjudicates to be shameful. This is a place, church, where we need to live at the intersection of love and righteousness. We cannot, we must not, we will not yield to the prevailing winds of our culture on the moral implications of this issue. We're just not going to do that. The Bible is explicitly clear on this issue. And those who claim that it's not are practicing what's called eisegesis. They're reading into the text a meaning that's not there. I've been trained in this. <laughs> and I can tell you what they're doing breaks rules of understanding biblical passages. But we will treat people that we know in the LGBTQIA plus category with love. They are image bearers of God. They were created in his image. Now, I will, I've told you this before. I'll tell you this again. When you make your sin your identity, repentance is impossible. Some of you take notes. You might want to write that down. I'm going to say it again. When you make your sin your identity, repentance is impossible. The only way to do that is to find a new identity or rediscover one that you have. I have great compassion for people who are in that situation. We need to love those folks. And I think a lot of the reason that people in the LGBTQIA community have, have completely rejected the truth claims of Scripture is because they've not perceived much love from the church. But they have gotten it there. And if you can get more love and acceptance in the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich, New York City than you can from this body, something's out of whack. This is one way that we do this, church. God has put us here in this place in this time. We will not compromise on the standard of righteousness that the New Testament lays out. We're not going to do that. But we will embrace this with love. We will live at the intersection of righteousness and love. That's our product. We work in the family business. That's what we, what we create. What, what, is the, what is God's family business? What do... <laughs> Righteousness and love. It's what we produce. Real love is not just a feeling. It has emotional elements, certainly. But love is also an action. 
that falls within the framework of doing righteousness. Saying that you're loving someone by doing something wrong or immoral is not love because you implicate them in it. What do you mean, Casey? I'll give you an example. Stealing bread to feed a starving child is still wrong. It might be an understandable wrong, but it's still stealing. I, I, I remember reading, that's like one of the Ten Commandments. Don't do that. It's still wrong. We might understand why, we might understand the motivation, but it doesn't make it right. And it will always, stolen bread will always have a bitter aftertaste. Right? Either you'll feel guilty or you will one day have to deal with a child who's morally corrupt because eventually they get old enough to figure out where the bread is coming from. And John is trying to prevent this generation from being led astray. And so he's saying, I want you to work in the family business. One of the hardest conversations I've ever had happened back in the winter of 2005. Deb and I were knee-deep in a church plant in Billings, Montana. We had a guy who had started coming to the church that we started who had a very low view of vocational ministers. And we were, I don't remember, I mean, I'd been to this guy's house. I'd eaten with him. I, I thought he was my friend. And at, at one point, I don't know what happened. I don't know what turned him. But at one point, he turned to me, and he, with just scorn dripping from his voice, he said, did your daddy get you this job? You know how you can never think of a good answer in the moment? <laughs> I, I, I was like, I, I thought you were my friend. Like, what, where is this coming from? I don't remember exactly what I said. It was something like, well, he gave my name to the organization and, like, my phone number, but that's all. Like, they called me and they asked if I wanted to interview, and I did, and I moved, and I got the job. Like... I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't think of a good answer because that's what I said was mush. But what I wished I would have said is, yeah, my daddy got me this job and he gave it to you too, but I don't see you doing it. Thank you. John is telling us Dear ones, work in the family business. See, that's the big idea today. In Jesus' family business, we make two products, love and righteousness. And when we do that well, we destroy the competition. And we need to, because we're running out of time. There's an appeal in the text to the return of Christ. John says that we will see him as he is. This is a ripple. We'll see it later in Revelation 22 where John writes, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve them. Look, look, church. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We are named. We are called his children. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The end is drawing near. We have to produce as much love and righteousness as we can. That's the family business.
In Dr. Tony Evans' teaching on this passage in Right Now Media, which is a great study that kind of goes along with this sermon series, he, he said this, listen, we don't know when God is coming, and so we can't let sin dominate our lives. God the Father has called you his child. He has named you. He has called you into the family business. Will you respond to that call? If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you have the opportunity to do that today. We're going to stand and sing in just a second, and as we do, I would invite you to come forward. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. He calls you into relationship with him. He wants to give you a name. He wants to forgive your sin, but you have to receive that gift. You can do that today. Maybe you've recognized today, yeah, I've been part of the family business, but I'm kind of not doing what I'm supposed to do. And I've erred on the side of love, or I've erred on the side of righteousness, and I need to do both. And that's my challenge for you this week. Both. We do both. So maybe as, as we sing this song, you want to just be praying, God, help me do both this week. Help me make both products that I'm supposed to make. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you.